Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. In my continuing effort to converse with those who make a living in the arts, broadly defined, and their views on art and social change, I spent time talking with Padre Gotama, an Irish poet and theologian who has published both poetry and prose. Until last year, Padraig was the director of the Corimila community, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organization, which for over 50 years has sought to help those who have lived through and been adversely affected by the violence in Northern Ireland. In 2011, he co-founded the storytelling event 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes to tell a true story about their lives related to themes which change monthly. Having started in Belfast, the event now occurs across the globe, although there are virtual events in our current COVID-19 world. Padraig is currently the theologian-in-residence for the On Being Project, a media and public life initiative where he's responsible for a podcast called Poetry Unbound. If you've never heard it, I encourage you to give it a listen. Padraig chooses a poem each week that he reads and discusses in depth, but in a short period of time, and the results are splendid. When I originally contacted Padraig, I told him I'd like to discuss, in part, the civil unrest here in the United States relative to the Black Lives Matter movement and the cultural divide evident in our political discourse, especially related to the upcoming election. He was quick to point out that he's not an American, plus he's white, so he was careful to couch his thoughts and knowledge about conflict in general, as well as how it might apply here in the States. And like I have done with a few other interviewees, I explained to him that one impetus for me reaching out to him was a Joni Mitchell quote about the importance of artists in difficult times. Over the course of an hour, we discussed politics, theology, history, and how poetry can speak to rage, lament, and conflict resolution. But these poet types are clever, don't you know? So we wound up beginning the conversation with a discussion about my field, sociology. Interestingly, in, in the academic fields in the north of Ireland, even in fields of theology, it's been the, it's been the sociologists of religion who have really been amplified, Gladys Ganiel, John Brewer, and they've been saying some really, really interesting things about paying attention to the sociology of religion, that it isn't necessarily a theological exploration, but let's look at some facts about how religion's been used. Right. And I think some sociological analysis of our own religious traditions, if we come from Christian um, points of view in terms of the impact of that religion globally in the last 500 years are really worthwhile to pay attention to in terms of the suppression of language, the changing of the ethnic demographic of a place, the allotment of power. Um, so, and I, one of the things I love about sociology is that it has, um, when it's being done well, um, paid enormous attention to the evidence of the content of what people say. So it has um, rules around the quality of paying attention and listening and noticing what's being said. And I think that is so important when you can find a way to weight that with the proper weight with which it comes. Um, Claire Mitchell is a magnificent sociologist from here. She doesn't work in it anymore, but she did for a good while. And I was always struck by the interviews that she'd do 
how much narrative attention she gave to the evidence about what was being contained in the language people were saying, what they did, what they didn't say, but having to justify that through a narratology and then ask questions about the meaning created through it. So I have a lot of time for the discipline of sociology and what it does. Yeah, and it's a pretty broad discipline because that, you know, the ethnomethodologist is sometimes what you'll hear that term called. Uh, yeah. But then we have people with the big structural um, yeah. impacts too. And so what I, one reason I was going to talk to you is that maybe we'll find sort of a middle space, you know, in there. And I was going to ask you a specific question about that in a minute. Um, right. Since you said you were a self-styled American uh, political scientist and race relations expert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> now, you know, when I reached out, as I said, in my email, it was, um, I, I think we need more dialogue, not less. And so I, I, Oh, yeah. I have a lot to say about whiteness as a white person in terms of, I suppose, what I feel the challenges are. But in terms of speaking to what is happening in the U.S., I'm a foreigner. And, you know, we think uh, in sociology, we have this term, the sociological imagination. And it's Mm. the ability to be able to see outside of your own experience. Yeah. One way I explain that to my students is for them to, to realize that not everybody sees America the way Americans see America. You remember a man named Gunnar Myrdal? He was a Swedish economist in the 1940s, and he wrote a book called The American Dilemma. Uh, The Mm. Carnegie Foundation hired him to do a study on race relations in the U.S., and Mm. it was a wonderful book, very detailed. But he said we have a dilemma in that we don't, you know, we have a a theory of practice are different. You know, the views we have about equality, we don't always practice. But anyways, they hired him to do this because as an outsider, they thought he would be less biased, you know, being able to kind of look at society from the outside. So that was that was part of it. Um, So this Joni Mitchell quote, she said, when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. So uh, a, a while ago. When I think when COVID sort of shut down um, things here in the U.S., I started to ruminate on that. And so I wanted to talk to people in different art, you know, fields of art. So I interviewed uh, Dustin Harewood, who's a visual artist, a painter and mixed media specialist. Um, Patterson Hood, he's a singer for a band called the Drive-By Truckers. And then Ward Churchill, an American Indian activist and former professor at University of Colorado as a writer. And when I read about you, some of your lectures, retreats, courses, One of them was poetry and conflict resolution. Mm. So that kind of made me think, all right, well, that's using art to make social change. So I was wondering if you could explain what that means or how that ties in. I know this might be something that you get a shit ton of money to do to go and talk to people about this (laughs) uh, in retreats and courses, and I'm not paying you a shit ton of money. So I can skip (laughs) the next question if you like. No, no, that's fine. I mean, underneath your question there, JR, is a question about what is the purpose and the role of art? And what is so important, I think, is to know that we don't know. We haven't a clue. We have made art for as long as we have been. You know, somebody put their hand in clay and mixed it with spit or water or urine or feces or something and put it on a wall to say, I'm here and I have been here. And I think there's something in that. You can analyze that, but you'll never get to the deepest reason. Maybe they did it on a whim. Maybe they hated it afterwards, or maybe they're doing it all the time, or maybe they kept on returning to that after different people died. And maybe after they died, other people who knew them came back and saw that and thought she or he made that. And I think the it's the ungraspability of why we make marks we make marks on paper to indicate music and then we make sounds, which is little marks in the air with music. And we make marks on paper with paint, 
we make marks in the air with our body when we dance or on paper or in, in the ear when we recite poetry. Um, and all of those are, I think they're linked back to that primary impulse of that person with their hand in clay stuck on the wall. And we don't know why, but we do know that it is an intrinsic part of the human project and the human condition. It's not secondary. <laughs> when I see um, art budgets and governments and the question about art as supplementary and all of that, I just think they haven't a clue. Um, there needs to be a fundamental reckoning with the meaning-making enterprise of the human condition and that that isn't an enterprise that is commodifiable finally it is commodifiable of course the arts and the entertainment are really important industry um and they should be funded but they're also happening whether or not they are and i think when they're funded well the quality of life is, is increased and so uh, by speaking there about the complexity and the mystery about the, the purpose and the role and the origin of art Therefore, when it comes to the relationship of art with conflict resolution or with paying attention to the here and now, art is always going to be happening. And so it's interesting to pay attention to the art that is happening in light of what's happening. And that's a fascinating and important thing to do. But I'm always wary about thinking of art that's for, because I don't know what art is for. I don't know what my art is for. I don't know where it comes from. I know it, 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 it asks me to pay attention to certain skills I have with language and form and reading and Irish and English, but um, those aren't the origin of it. Where is it from? And that's deeper than the question of um, quality. Am I a good artist or a bad artist? Right. I, I, I don't think that's the real question. I don't think that's it either. Um, but it can be used, and do you think it should be used, if it can be used, as, as inspiration for making social change and things like that? Well, I mean, social change is always going to speak about the, the fullness of the human person. And so, therefore, art is part of the fullness of the human person. So, in as much as we pay attention to policy and pedagogy and educational and provision and history, when we think about social change, we should also pay attention to art because it is as powerful and as long-standing as all, as all of those other features of the human enterprise. Um, so absolutely. And I think art can do something interesting because art is telling its slant, as Emily Dickinson would say, coming in the side doors, describing something that can actually breathe a little bigger than perhaps a description, a formal description could, because you'll always pick the holes in a formal description, whereas actually poetry is about the holes. Poetry is about the blank space and everything that's being not being said with that ink on that blank page. And so therefore, I think poetry in a certain sense is, um, is speaking to our own emptinesses. And I think when it comes to social change, we have a lot of lament and a lot of rage and poetry can speak into that, which is partly why I think poetry is vital in um, speaking about um, conflict resolution. I know we'll talk about that because conflict resolution as a science, you know, as a measurable science, and we need these measurements to know, does this intervention or that intervention work well and how can we evaluate that? That's all very important. And alongside that, we need places of rage and places of lament and um, because without that um we're not listening we're not learning and you can't separate the niceties of social change and conflict resolution from the uncontainabilities of rage and lament and rage and lament that will go on for a long time because they need to sure. because when you think of colonized places for instance um, you can't undo what has been done hannah arendt was saying that she suggests that we need a promise for the future 
but you can't undo what has been done if a language has been annihilated and even if it's being preserved through language preservation programs that is still a limping language in comparison to the flourishing that it once had and could well have been were it not for the deliberate policies of colonizing forces and that requires ongoing and sustained lament not a little three-year project of lament or a weekend lament or a plaque up somewhere, you know, or everybody learns how, learns how to say hello in that murdered language. Aren't we all good now? Stop talking about its death. No, let's talk about its death in any language for as long as we are using language. And, and I think that's because its death wasn't necessary. Um, and I think that's really important when it comes to thinking about the inconvenience of art, that art won't do what the strategic plan wants art to do art will do something different. Mm. You beat me to a question uh, I was going to ask in just a minute, but um, you have written somewhere something similar to that. If language can't be political, it's a waste of language. Um, Let's talk about disenfranchisement. Let's talk about what it means when you rip a language from a people and you damage a soul, which made me think of uh, the blues, the formation of the blues or the jazz, you know, essentially old spirituals, slave spirituals in the fields and, not allowed to practice their own religion or speak older languages. And so they created a new way to kind of communicate that now brings us into, you know, of course it's mushroomed into a lot, a lot of different forms, Mm. but the lament maybe is continuing through music. Yeah. Yeah. There's a phrase in Irish, uh, an old saying, shannockle, we'd call it. um, And it is, tír gan tanga, tír gan anam. A land without a language is a land without a soul. And that is so important when you think of indigenous languages and the the need to recognize them and to protect them. But even recognition and protection is not the same as their flourishing and what they would have evolved into had they been allowed to continue the way other languages had. I think it can be convenient for majority language speakers to think, well, those things just died out as if somehow that were an inevitability, but no, the technology of murdering a language has been around for a long time. Um, And I think the recognition that decisions were in play to cause languages to decimate and to make a people need to learn a new language in order to negotiate for their own safety and to prioritize which language you'd choose. If there was four indigenous languages, well, let's just prioritize one of them for the education system. Who the hell makes that decision and what happens to those other languages? And those are permanent laments that need to be set up around the world. And those will never end because we will be going further from the living speakers of those languages rather than returning to anything with it. And that is um, a devastation on the human on the human experience, and is worthy of being lamented for a very long time. Right, right. Um, and the United States is, of course, a you know a great example of that. You know, with English only. Um, uh, you know, being raised down in South Florida, the Cuban American community is very big. And I remember back in the day, um, city ordinances being passed that you could only speak English. You know, in the county courthouse and things like that you know and a quarter of the population speaks spanish but you know english 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 you know of course all the indigenous languages and and whatnot also being gone so uh i mean after brexit there were these interesting examples of happening so a woman who wears hijab was on the bus talking to her daughter and in wales and somebody started to shout at her for speaking a foreign language and she answered very calmly in welsh i'm speaking welsh (laughs) 
So they had assumed because they didn't like how she was choosing to dress that she was speaking a foreign language and they shouted at her in a foreign language, English, that she was speaking a foreign language. <laughs> that, is, that seems like a peripheral thing, but it's so not. Because so often places that say, no, our language here is English are absolutely betraying the plurality that has existed there for a very long time. On the island of Britain, for instance, you've got such extraordinary language cultures. You know, you've got Welsh, you've got Cornish, you've got um, all the Englishes, all the Englishes, plural, because there's so many versions of English that these days would be considered different language because they're in their own in their own dialect and written with a with a literature. And then, of course, Scots and Gaelic, and then all the different um, languages of Scots. And then up in Northumberland and Cumbria, you've got these amazing languages as well. And so the idea that Britain itself is an English-speaking place from which English comes is a really reductive understanding of the linguistic um, richness of Britain, indigenously. Um, never mind all the languages now that are spoken there with great magnificence. How does that reduction, do you think, um, parlay into views about other well, I have been reading Hélène Sixou lately. Are you familiar with her? No. French philosopher, literary theorist, poet. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has this really interesting critique we, uh, of you know, René Girard and his theory of the other and the kind of um, mimetic theory of mim- mimetic desire and the scapegoating and the, the, the negative othering of the other. And I find... Rene Girard's imagination of that really powerful and you do see it played out in many places that you reduce yourself to a singular even though you might already be a plural and your public narration of yourself is as a singular in order then to be able to other the other on a negative level and say unless you speak or present or look or whatever past the code to be part of our singular then you're a negative other and you do find that so often you know over and over again I mean, you see it happening in children's classes sometimes, you know, they'll talk about um, the them, whoever they are. When I was 14, we had a school debate in our small village with um, a school from another much more rural village. We were rural enough, but this village was more rural. And the, the folks, the young people from the more rural village kept on calling us, you city folk. We thought it was hilarious because, my God, we were 10 miles from Cork City. Some people were in there a lot, but those, others of us weren't. And the idea that we were city folk in our shitty little village of 11,000 people, God <laughs> almighty, um, was hilarious to us. And we were calling them culties, you know, but they were calling us city folk. And then people from the actual city would have thought it was hilarious. And then Dubliners, because they're wankers, would have called all of us hilarious because <laughs> we were not Dubliners. You're all, there's Dublin and there's everything else, you know. <laughs> Whereas, anyway, I mean, I'm using hyperbole with there. Everywhere is full of the everything. And there's, there's pluralities happening everywhere. So you see it happening in small societies like the arrangements of young people with each other. But then uh, you can also see this happening in in national politics, for instance, you know, um, so after 9-11, the word Muslim suddenly became this other and this powerful definition of Muslim came into the public lexicon in the United States, it seemed, as an outsider watching it. And what I could hear was that the Muslims who had been around for a very, very long time in the United States 
um, Muslims in America suddenly had to pass the I'm not a terrorist um, test, which was being established arbitrarily by people who had othered them. And that certainly was helped by language being used by George W. Bush. So that that is all very powerful. And I think what has been so helpful for me lately in reading Ellen Sixu has been that she said, other hasn't always been that other kind of other. And she speaks about the body of the female body, the anatomically female body. And she says, for people in whose bodies, and she was writing this in the 60s, people who can, through sex, take someone into their body and through birth, give give birth to someone else, have a fundamentally different relationship to what the question of other and intimacy is. And so she's speaking in a cisgendered way. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, maybe you'd want to change the language of it, but I think the the sentiment of that is fascinating. It's not only women, of course, who take somebody into their body in the act of sex. And so I suppose I'd be curious for us all as bodied beings to speak about what is it like when actually the consummation in love by another and with another, what does that teach us about what the engagement of other to other can be like can be. in terms of in terms of love and, and has been over and over again, over and over. So it's not just a potential, it's also an enacted for a very long time, not all the time, but some of the time. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, I suppose I'm always interested in making sure when we speak about the other, that we're not only speaking about the other as if that's always been a combative relationship, because it hasn't been. Because in as much as we have murdered others because we have defined them as other, we have also um, embraced others um, and right. loved them and given our lives for them. And that's not to make it pretty. It is to make us reflect on who decides and who decides for us. And what might it be to have an imagination, a moral imagination, a sociological imagination, where we are querying the power that decides who the other is negatively and who the same is um, positively? quick you made me think of uh, when you're talking about the other uh, as women versus men in that approach I, I immediately thought of um, medical illustrations and the traditional human body is always the male and then where the female differs there's this little side picture have you seen okay. those like at the doctor's office you know there'll be like the medical person the, oh, okay the drawing of the male body, and then here's where the women are different. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And even I uh, went to an ENT, ear, nose, and throat, and they had a picture up there, you know, of the nose and the throat, and then it had the female, I mean, ear, nose, and throat, and we're still separating out yeah. <laughs> male and female, you know, bodies as, you know, the clear dictation of who's the other. Um, in our In my field, we have a theoretical framework called symbolic interaction. And it's the most micro level of sociology because we can get pretty broad, uh, a lot of ethnographies and whatnot, as you mentioned. And their their starting point is that we make sense of our social world by interacting with symbols and symbols, language being perhaps the most important, you know, symbol system. And so they spend a lot of time studying language, uh, which was kind of right up the alley of what you're saying, how we define this. One of the critiques against that framework, though, is that it, it's a little bit 
devoid of power. So it doesn't make an allowance for power. Um, so you touched on that a little bit. Who gets to decide what's the definition of other? Uh, who gets to decide, you know, this is how we are going to socially define this narrative interaction or construct. So how do you think power plays into these, some of these um, definitions of reality that may or may not really be up to us? Yeah, I, and I, I don't know who they are up to, but power is a, an obsession of mine in terms of thinking it through. Um, I think of, in the European colonial era, who called it the new world? <laughs> I mean, that is a piece of linguistic meaning-making that is a symbol, and that symbol is laden itself with a way of hiding genocide and war under a both exploratory project as well as religious and evangelistic project, often both of which were used just as you know icing on this cake of destruction. Um, and so I, I think that language itself does highlight power and language is worthy of being pushed. You know, who called it the new world? Who decided that protecting American interests overseas was a really good phrase to talk about American presence outside of what is known as the United States of America? Okay. Those are ways within which what you're describing in terms of the symbology of everyday language on a micro level um, is linked with a, a power-making structure that is part of, I think generously you could call it hoodwinking people, but maybe to push that it is part of giving people the convenience of not having to, of being able to dismiss anybody who was, a, 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 who was querying such language. Um, because I, I'm not entirely sure that that I always want to be pushed in terms of thinking about is what I'm doing terrible? <laughs> and I'm really happy when somebody makes me think, no, 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 it's not. And I think my life will be a long project of trying to once again query that. And my guess is that when I'm in my 80s, please God, I'll still be going, my God, I'm, my eyes are opening once again to that project of supremacy that we see over and over again in, in human history. I wish it weren't the case, but particularly the expansionist European project of history has had an imagination of supremacy, world evangelism through religion, you know, whether that's Catholicism or Protestantism or Orthodoxy or all the other Christianities that are around um, civilizing the natives. God Almighty, what the sure. hell does that mean? Right. Um, introducing governance systems as if there weren't sophisticated governance systems, you know, training people in agriculture as if individuals haven't been growing shit for years right. and right. living quite fine. And often the agricultures that were introduced were utterly... Oh, um, yeah. The Dust Bowl, right? The Dust Bowl. Like we showed those Indians how to, how to work the land, right? We just destroyed yeah. the whole West, you know? <laughs> totally. And, and bringing with us Europeans and Irish people very involved in the uh, what we, place we call Australia, you know, bringing with us an understanding about what land ownership means. So because individuals and uh, indigenous communities there were um, migratory in patterns in terms of where you could farm for how long during what season, 
there was this idea to say, oh, they don't have a concept of ownership, so therefore we can take the whole damn lot and talk all it terra nullis, you know, the fantasized empty earth. So we're not stealing it. Again, that's another small symbology that actually was giving people an out for their conscience. And I think it's too easy to think that they totally believed it. I think they wanted to believe it, and that's a totally different thing. It is, yeah, that's a great question. Do you uh, take somebody's shit because you think they're below you or do you really want their shit and you have to figure out a way to justify it so then you come up with the idea that they're below you totally right difficult question um do you think it just is it as simple uh and reductionist as to just say pure power pure either economic or firepower i mean i hate to say it Mm -hmm. sounds that simple you know we have another theoretical framework in sociology called the conflict theory which originates some of the ideas from Karl marx and then they've gone on a lot of different directions but kind of one of the underlying tenets is there's always this underlying conflict and competition over scarce resources and there's usually going to be one group who has more of that stuff and they are usually going to be able to do whatever they can to keep that stuff so uh i don't want to sound too deterministic but is it yeah that kind of what that's where that's where elen siksu and i think her name is elizabeth johnson i think that's where both of them in terms of their i suppose their work is kind of literary and political and philosophical um and anthropological, they are introducing things to say, well, let's do a gendered exploration as to who is observing who in terms of that trend throughout history. And um, when we say all human beings have done that, are we really saying lots of men have done it or lots of European men have done it? Right. And why don't, what's, what's wrong with being specific about that? And what are the other narratives that were um, prohibited from learning to write. For instance, women keeners, somebody who would keen a lament at a funeral in Ireland, were sometimes prevented from learning how to write because the male poets, and that was a profession in Ireland to be trained as a poet. It was a long, long training, 17 years, I think I read once. Um, And so male poets were feeling threatened by the idea that women would be able to write their keens down. So you kept keens in the bodies of women and then... um, you had men writing their poets, poems down. Dirnan Negriafu, who's an Irish language poet who lives in Cork, has been writing very powerfully about that. And Nuala Nidonal, who is another Irish language poet um, from Cork and Tipperary. She was born in England, grew up in Ireland. She also has been writing powerfully about ways within which some of these broad war-making narratives that we have of the past in themselves are a selected narrative because of selected power granted during the time. So I, I suppose I don't know because I'm always curious to think who has allowed this to become a dominant narrative somewhere. When you have a chance, can you either uh, in the chat or an email, send me the name of those two you just mentioned? Oh yeah, I'll do it now. Uh, Otherwise I'll forget. I didn't get any of those uh, vowels or consonants that you said. Yeah, you won't. No, no. Uh, let's see. How do you pronounce it? Dorian? Duran. Duran? Duran Yuriofa. <laughs> Give it a go. Go on, JR. Are you just making that up? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Nuala. Nula. Nula. Okay, I'm making it more complex than it is. I'm adding <laughs> syllables there where there's not really syllables. Yeah. Nula Nikonal. Yeah. Okay. You got to do the... Yeah, it's not quite as deep as the Dutch or German, but it's 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 certainly at the back of the throat rather than in the throat. Yeah. Okay. 
At this point in our conversation, Padraig wrote down the names of the writers he had been discussing, since I was struggling a little bit with the spelling. You can find the names on this post in my blog, in case you have an interest in exploring some of their work. I took the opportunity to sneak in a quick comment about one of my favorite poets, Kay Ryan, the former United States Poet Laureate, and we'll pick things up at that point. Do you know Kay Ryan, by the way, the poet Kay Ryan? Yeah. She was the Nobel, okay, she was Nobel Laureate, uh, Poet Laureate, excuse me, and I saw her speak uh, couple, this has been a while now, and I asked her afterwards about this is just an off the topic question, but I, I kind of I asked her about the future of poetry because you know you even said on one some interview I was listening to, you know one out of a million poets really makes their living as a poet. Yeah, yeah. and uh, her answer was, and I don't I don't think I don't know if she wrote this down. She said poetry is the salvation of language as it always has been. Language is for pleasure, so poetry will survive by its beauty. Because yeah, like, that's lovely. Yeah. I mean, like, um, it is true that poetry, that there are, it's a very rare poet makes their living from poetry, which to my mind has always been the case, <laughs> but there has always been poetry. So for me, when I say that it's a rare poet who makes their work, living from poetry, that isn't a, a sense of worry about the endeavor of poetry. It is a sense of reflection on the fact that all kinds of people doing all kinds of things write all kinds of poetry and that that is to be celebrated and honoured not um, rather than making a, a specific profession of poetry that only the poets write the poems. That's never been the case. Yeah. All kinds of people have written poetry. I mean, Mary Oliver, who won the Pulitzer and the National Book Award, you know, she taught poetry for a lot of her life and she said, you know, what a person should do is have a job that they can enjoy doing and then get up at 5am and write. Right. And she said, have it. Oh, she recommended have a job that you can do during its hours, but that you don't need to take home with you. Okay. And then sustain yourself with that job financially mm-hmm. and then do your work, whatever your work is, you know, your real work, your vocation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a, that's a fine approach. There can be this idea. Somebody wants to be a poet to go, well, therefore I need to win all the prizes and be the, get all the fame. I just think, no, you don't. You can, um, there's all kinds of ways to be sustained by poetry as a writer of it. And I think it's so interesting when people are um, holding multiple things together about that, because then you've you've got all this interesting material for your poetry, if nothing else. I have a friend in Canada who's a firefighter and loves poetry. And what an interesting thing, um, what two interesting things to know, what amazing vocabularies he can bring to his poems as a result of knowing all the vocabulary that's used in terms of fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there is. I hadn't thought about that. There's a lot of artists, a lot of poets in the United States are teachers of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, secondary or tertiary level. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Uh, you know, um, Jane Mead, who just died last year, very suddenly, she was a farmer in Northern California, a grape farmer, I think, where not for wine, but for raisins, I think. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, how interesting. You get it done. I, I, I love knowing that, you know. Um, so yes. there's so many different ways to to be a poet. Right. Um, yeah. Can you, um, can we move from the individual to the structural in some of these issues? Please. Um, the micro level conflict resolution. 
techniques. Uh, you, you know, you have said, like, are, you know, in conflict resolution, are people opening to listening? Are they opening to believing the truth and things like this? Um, how can we, if possible, can we move from those techniques to a larger scale? Well, somehow I think those small techniques are also informative about the larger scale of things because there's people involved in setting policy. There's people deciding whether there's going to be a truth commission and there's people involved in considering questions of the reforming of educational curricula and and its content, as well as people involved in what public language are we going to use about reparations. And I think all of those things are going to be supported by some of those small practices in terms of um, the human endeavor of thinking, can I be open to being on the wrong side of this and then making some kind of repentance to be um, improving? So I think even the big things are involved in small acts of courage where somebody says, we can. Somebody goes, we can't reform, you know, we can't introduce the idea of empire into the British history curriculum. You can. <laughs> like, and the imagination that says we can't is worthy of being critiqued. Um, or we can't introduce the idea of challenging the Irish imagination of the 1800s by looking at the Irish participation in British um, empire throughout the diaspora. So therefore locating racism as an intrinsically Irish project since then, and probably before it, of course, too. Somebody might go, you can't do that. Why not? Yeah. yeah. And what that means is that somebody in a situation hears themselves saying we can't and has some kind of imaginative muscle that is open to saying, hang on, I just said we can't. What, um, what am I going to do about that? Rather than escalating in defensiveness, can we do something curious? Can we be open to the possibility of surprise? Can we be open to the possibility of saying, can we talk about my resistance? And didn't, am I being an asshole or am I making an important point or something in between? And I think those kinds of techniques are so important in the person-to-person conflict resolution as well as in the structural change. Um, because so much, I, I think, in terms of public communication by politicians is because politicians are imagining the people won't get it. The people will revolt. The people will whatever. I see that too in publishing. I see it too in media, where people mm-hmm. will be saying, the audience won't get it. The audience will be confused, etc. So our imagination of the audience is often a projection of something that we want them to have in order to justify our resistance to the change that we're being invited to make. And I think the imagination can open us up to um, acting on those very resistances and paying attention to them and then thinking, Actually, the public, whatever the hell that means, the public live very sophisticated lives where they're coping with grief and joy and inherited privilege and inherited structural discrimination and sadness and challenge. So the the public will cope really easily if I'm able to contain in public to say, we're introducing a change. We're going to start telling new stories about Ireland's past because some of the ways we've told the story of Ireland's past has led us into cycles of blame that actually are worthy of being recalibrated or ustranyinye, as the Russians would say, (laughs) giving us a new, making us feel foreign where we thought we felt local.
it gets back to power again. You know, that's a salient point for the U.S. What you just brought up, because um, I this notion of here that I've I've heard you discuss and I've read some you talk about as well. You say that there's a way in which the notion of saying hello to here requires a fairly robust capacity to tell the truth about what's going on, and that can be difficult, especially for those who benefit, right? I think so. Many people don't feel like they benefit, perhaps. And so they're going to be resistant to change. So if in the U.S., for example, um, polls, you know, social surveys, do what you will with them, but they show continuously that the majority of Americans are for a more nationalized health care. Like they want health care. Uh, they are not as supportive of gun rights as many people would say. But neither of those have had this long-term significant traction in our government. And you have a government that is, you know, the Senate's over 40% of them are millionaires. And so it's not really necessarily representative democracy. So at that level, boy, how do you, you know, we have citizens saying, no, this is how we feel yet the ears aren't hearing it or they're ignoring it because of their concern for, I don't know, individual, individual profit or individual power, losing their power or whatnot. Or, or threat. Um, once at a gig, I met this magnificent man and he worked for a, an initiative that incentivized people who were dictators or close to being dictators to, to change their practices. It was an initiative funded by a phenomenally wealthy Kenyan man. And, and I, so I was talking to this guy at the gig and I said, how do you do it? Like, what do you do? And he said three really interesting things. Um, he said, we let them know that if they try to make changes in government and get ousted, that we will um, look after their family, finan- them and their family financially. Okay. And, to a level of opulence, you know, it wasn't to say, oh, you know, you'll have a nice little house in this housing estate, just like everybody else. No, the, anybody who was in senior power was already living with security or whatever. So to say, you'll be looked after, okay? And then to say, your legacy will live on past you. You will be understood as the person who started this. Okay, And then the third thing he said is that we have a gradated imagination. We're not going from, you know, dictator or close to it to, you know, the Buddha um, in one fell swoop. We're saying, actually, it's here's so there's measurability, there's legacy and there's safety in it. And I think those three things were fascinating incentives for change and one of the things that I think is so powerful and you hear it, but I mean, I'm not a politician and I don't know these politicians, but I hear of pharma and its money or the gun industry and its money in the United States as two enormous unelected influences on American policy. And both of those are carrying threat. And one of those threats is you'll lose your power and you'll lose your money and your position. And what this initiative was doing, funded by this Kenyan gentleman, for which this man that I met at a gig, one of the things that they were doing is to say, don't worry, your reputation actually will live on because what you're, we, we will fund you enough that your initiative towards justice will not be lost and wow. your family will be okay. Um, and I, I mean, I think what they were doing is playing in the murky waters. I think you could write all kinds of ethical critiques of that approach, but I think it's really interesting and fascinating. 
it was extraordinary and so right. interesting. And, and with it, I found myself thinking of the fundamental level of threat that we find. And what is the threat that somebody who might have been elected on the idea that they're a good person, a politician for the people, and then they begin to make choices and vote according to maybe other interests about pharma or about um, guns, etc. And the people are disappointed. What I always want to know is if you ever could get the truth about what was the threat that was against you, real or imagined, and what would it mean to find a way to imagine yourself in that threat in a new way? Yeah. Um, and it's so difficult now to be elected. You have to have so much money in your corner, you know, that if you either have it and then you're not necessarily representative of your constituency, if you have that much money, and if you don't have it, then you're getting it from somebody else, you know, who might have, you know, say, or try to have a say, right. And how you, of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And all of these levels of threat and power are being used in that. Now, mostly I know this from watching House of Cards. So right. it's, it's <laughs> not go. like, you know, and, and or other things. So it's not like I feel like I'm observing this from any vantage point of closeness. But you see it represented in good fiction over and over again that I, I believe the fiction that, that that is powerful. And then you hear, of course, people after they've had... Um, after they've left a position of power, when they're retired, when they have their home and their income and they're actually able to tell the truth, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I got tired after a while of, of Christian bishops who had been either conservative or on the fence about the question of the safety and dignity of LGBT people after they retired saying, well, actually for a very long time I've been a quiet friend and ally of the LGBT community. And I want to say, fucking hell right you're you supposedly follow a religion that calls you to truth and courage how about you enact it a little bit rather than allowing people be crucified until you get to the stage of enough safety where you can then say well actually i've been a quiet supporter all along my god follow your own religion yeah totally so therefore partly in looking at this for a long time and in so doing you're asking the people who are already unsafe to continue to be unsafe so that your already established safety can be preserved and I think that um, safety and threat are so worthwhile taking very seriously in the question about how power works itself out and real safety and imagined safety and real threat and imagined threat. So Claire Mitchell, the sociologist I mentioned before, Belfast sociologist, in one of her books, she's speaking about evangelicalism and Northern Ireland. And she says, um, she's talking about the Irish conflict being a, an, a um, a meta conflict because she says there's conflict about what the conflict's about and i think that 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 structure of language that she uses is so magnificent and you can apply it to fear as well often people aren't frightened they're frightened of fear they have fear about the fear and it is so worthwhile asking that and that ultimately is an inner journey that's going to be manifested in courageous acts or displacing acts taken in the outer journey and that's as relevant for a politician as for a person who's an artist as for a person who's setting a new agenda for a a pedagogical approach okay so what about this this love of of nationality of, of being Irish and storytelling and poetry and whatnot? Um, 
And then how does that meet with jingoism or nationalism? You know, what's the separation there? Like, I, this is an important question for Americans as well. We were raised in this cultural narrative, right, of what it means to be American, and, and that is not always a liberating space. Is it possible to attain some kind of, of, of peace and, and kindness within these constructs of um, artificial boundaries and, and yeah. narrative, narratives like that? Well, I think you'll be able to help me think about this because without having read anything about it, I find myself, when I hear people from former empires, and I consider America to be an empire, mm-hmm, um, sure. and, and former or not so former, Britain, France, America, Australia, these places that are a white European projects on a grand scale built on genocide, when I hear folks there critique nationalism, and use that to critique nationalism from small countries that have been yearning for a long time, not to project nationalism, their nationalism globally, but to just fucking well have their own. Right, right. I think we're talking about two different things. Okay. And I'm tired of Britain speaking about Irish nationalism as if they know what they're talking about. Right. Because British nationalism is very different to Irish nationalism. And I I think that is worthwhile introducing some... um, it's not even nuance because to my mind, I'm not that intelligent. If I've come up with it, other people have too. And so I think it's really worthwhile pushing that globally when people are talking about nationalism as a way of suppressing the inconvenient challenge to dominance and supremacy that's just being taken as the status quo. You know, I am tired of hearing people who's projected their language globally to say, oh, you know, I'm just a bit worried about rising nationalism. Are you now? My God, (laughs) rising, is it? Dear God, after 400 years. So I have strong feelings about that. But I haven't thought about it or talked about it too much or read about it. So I'd be really interested in a pushback about that or to say, be better. (laughs) I mean, Irish nationalism, like, I don't think that bestows um, instant... Um, beatitude on the project of Irish nationalism, like Irish national in the name of Irish nationalism, torture has happened. You know, seventeen, eighteen-year-old young fellows from the British Army have died the most horrific deaths. Families have lived in awful grief because of in the wake of of murder. So, like Irish nationalism has blood all over its hands. My God, um, but I still think it's a different thing. For sure, where there's this imagination of. Um, other kinds of nationalism that have gone and spread their spread their projects around the world. So I don't think that that critique um, fundamentally condemns any party, nor does it fundamentally indemnify any party either. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we, we you know you talked about symbology earlier on, and and the kind of sociological analysis of symbol making. You could say, in a certain sense, that a nationality is a symbol-making initiative, and there's already gradations of that as to who automatically fits into that and who has to prove that in order to, you know, belong. Um, yeah, and language—not just individual words, but but languages—and a particular language becomes a symbol-making of that within a national endeavor. And then, if there is a place that has a so-called natural border, i.e., the sea. Therefore, you know, you've got all these factors that can happen. And what does migration mean to that? And what kind of migration, do you know, somebody yes. comes from Scotland to live in Ireland, they're kind of considered as a distant cousin pretty quickly, do you know, because we like the Scots, they sound nice, you know. Right, right. Um, whereas if somebody comes from England, they might be the, they might have all kinds of projections onto them, which are utterly unfair. Mm. 
within the context of that, I'm really interested in, as as we come to thinking about nationality, to in the midst of differentiation and saying we're Irish because and you're English because and you know benevolence on our side and blame towards the other. Um, I'm really interested in what does it mean to deliberately and not naively practice praise. Uh, over the last number of years, myself and a colleague, Glenn Jordan, uh, have run through Coromila uh, a kind of an, a national border-based discussion project with folks, British and Irish folks, exploring what value does the Hebrew Book of Ruth have for conversations about Brexit. Um, because if you try to say, well, here's an established story about Ireland, everybody will disagree about that. Here's an established story about Britain, God Almighty, everybody will disagree with that. So we looked at this great book, Book of Ruth, a displaced, widowed um, woman who um, crosses the border with her mother-in-law, who's returning home after a famine in Moab. Small territories nearing each other and the impact about as to whether she's going to be allowed to inherit um, land and marry into a family, you know, through leveret marriage. It's a really interesting study. And one of the things we began to do is to ask, what do you hold against people from other jurisdictions around Britain and Ireland? And we'd have Welsh and Irish and Scottish and English people and Cornish people and people from Northumberland. And all these old um, resentments were being voiced, which was great to hear that. And then we'd say, who here doesn't have somebody in their family who went to or came from another jurisdiction or another religious identity? It was a rare person who could say, look, we've always been Catholic from Dublin for a very long time. You know, a very rare person wouldn't have had that or whatever, you know, idea. And therefore to say, well, what do we admire about each other? Not to gloss over that with kind of, you know, sugar and spice, but to find a way to say, surely be to God, we have to be able to speak about what we admire about each other. And in the context of that, we might be able to consider what it means to be neighbours if we can speak admiringly about each other alongside some of the resentments we hold. Mm-hmm. And that felt like a, a moral, imaginative endeavour based on presumably a fictionalised narrative about near neighbours. And it showed to me the power of fiction and the power of imagination and the power of what generosity can look like in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whether it, uh, fiction or not, it, it served that purpose. No, it was true. Yeah, I mean, sure. fiction can be true. Sure. Uh, one of the interesting things that was controversial at the time about September 11th was Arundhati Roy's speech come September, which she gave, I think, in Sydney when she won the Sydney Peace Prize. Okay. She was rightly saying, my God, the devastation and the grief of all these families in the United States. But she was critiquing the idea that it was the worst day in the world and the day the world stood still. You know, these phrases, um, because she said, well, let's just just for the 100 years, let's look at September 11th in different countries. And that's what she did. And it is the most magnificent speech and frightening and challenging because she lays griefs alongside griefs, small ones, huge ones, large ones. And you see something there that she's doing, which isn't about minimizing, but is about democratizing the story that's being told about something and imagining it in a new framework. Uh, All right. Last question. Difficult question. Now that you're warmed up, Um, if you could choose one thing to make progressive, how you define progressive uh, change going forward. That could be, for me, it would be reducing inequality. Uh, I think I've said this before, but in my country, the 
duopoly, the political duopoly we have, we essentially just have oligarchy either way. We only have two parties and there's essentially, there's not a whole lot of difference. Uh, although our current president notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> so I would try to maybe change, change that to give more mm-hmm. legitimate choices in the political field. But how about you? What would you say would be the number one step we could do to make progressive social change? Um, truth commissions um, initiate, initiated by um, many of the European countries that had worldwide empires, as well as these new empires of Australia and America and Canada. I mean, Canada is doing some of it. Um, and New Zealand also doing some of it. Yeah, I think truth commissions. I wouldn't call it a truth and reconciliation commission because I think that's presumptive. <laughs> it's too easy to say. And we will be reconciled at the end of three months, three years, whatever. I wouldn't call it that. Okay. Um, that would be of interest to me. Do they have teeth? Will they have teeth, these commissions? Well, you see, that's part of the problem then is to look at, you know, is that basically, are they, are they trials? Are there amnesties declared? Um, how do you... How do you um, give a sentence, a justice-based sentence for kind of long-term inherited um, sociological or socioeconomic um, de- deprivation that's been an, an enforced policy. Who do you blame for that today? Do you know, mm-hmm. I suppose reparation, yes, would be teeth. Um, the question as to um, jail sentences or not is one that many places have tried and uh, finer and more intelligent people than me have all kinds of interesting opinions about. Sure. Um, yeah, localized as well as nationalized. Um, localized ones are really interesting. The Kenyan, one of the Kenyan Truth Commissions got young people to talk about the impact on them as well as not only speaking about people who had been tortured and murdered and, their, their res- and disappeared and their families' narratives, also got people to speak about the inherited socioeconomic um burdens and pressures that were put on them as if it were their fault um, over a long time. And so that was a really interesting level of inviting the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, interesting as it was and critiqued, though it has been in many ways, invited individuals for a long time, but then invited institutions to make institutional-based truth-tellings. And there were one from the Catholic Church and the Quakers and the Anglicans and the Baptists. They're so interesting to read because they were inviting that. And those those ones seem to be less regularly read than the individual ones. Mm-hmm. I tend to think that truth commissions should be understood to be going for 50 years at least. That should be There should be a thing to say we're initiating a 50-year truth commission because this has been going on for a long time. The idea that anything could be recovered and truthed in three years or the term of a, a, a government is is biased and it, it ties it too too partisanly if you can say it that yeah. um i like the idea of saying 50 years of this we're going to have we're going to revisit things every seventh year and in the 50th year we're going to do something interesting in terms of a publication and in terms of some new changes and that therefore you're not saying that thing that happened three years ago it was crap because to go okay we realized here's one of the major flaws of what was there let's make sure to research that and implement that into the next one that's happening at the end of the seventh year I think that could be a way to do it. I mean, that's entirely borrowing from um, the, the the imagination that you find in Judaism regarding the every seventh year reflection and then the Jubilee year of the 50th. Okay. I think it's an interesting model. So, All right. Well, thank you very much. Hey, it's a pleasure to meet you, JR. Yeah. yeah, it was a pleasure to meet you too.
As I reflect back on our discussion, I'm left wondering how we can possibly apply some of Bodrick's ideas to the conflicts and divisions we see here in the United States. I couldn't say I'm hopeless about it, or else I probably wouldn't be doing this blog. But when I see the anger and animosity found in our dialogue, from politicians to the media to even run-of-the-mill conversations, I admittedly become discouraged. However, I feel inspired after talking to people like Padre Gautama and feel a glimmer of hope. Maybe when history steps back and looks at our current times, it'll be but a blip on the radar, a short but intense period of discontent that ended up fueling a progressive social and economic revolution. You've been listening to an interview with Padre Gautama on our social landscape. I'd like to thank Padre for taking some time out of his hectic schedule to share his ideas with me. This song is A Necklace of Wrens by The Gloaming. And I also played I Am Stretched at Your Grave by Sinead O'Connor. And The Cuckoo of Glen and Beaten Wings by Colin Mac Conimra. I'm J.R. Woodward. Thanks for listening. Look